Chapter Two of Stories of the Ships by Lewis Ransom Freeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section Seven in a Balloon Ship. I had crossed in the old Xerxes in those ancient days when, as the latest launched greyhound of the Cunarder fleet, she held for a few precarious months the constantly shifting blue ribbon for the swiftest transatlantic passage. But in that angular cubistic lump of lead gray looming over the bow of my spray-smothered launch to blot out the undulant skyline of the nearest Orkney, there was not one familiar feature. Her forward funnel had been kippered down the middle to somewhere about on the level of the lower deck, and carried up in two smaller stacks which rose abreast to port and starboard this had been done as i learned later to make room for a platform leading forward from the waist over which seaplanes could be wheeled to the launching stage which ran out over the bow from beneath the bridge the break in the forecastle had been closed in connection with a sweeping alteration which had converted the whole forward end of the main deck into a roomy seaplane repository and repair shop the changes aft were no less startling the old poop seemed to have been raised to extend the last two hundred feet of the main deck, and over the ten or fifteen feet high railing which surrounded this, the top of a partly inflated observation balloon showed like the back of a half-submerged turtle. The whole effect was weird and impossible in the extreme, and I felt like exclaiming with the yokel who saw a giraffe for the first time, "'Ah, there ain't no such animal!' I had been asked aboard the Xerxes for an afternoon of seaplane and balloon practice. I had already seen a good deal of the former at various points in the Mediterranean and Adriatic, but the towed observation balloon, the kite as they called it, was an entirely new thing. I put in at once for an ascent in a kite, for I was anxious not only to get some sort of a first-hand idea of how it was being employed against submarines, of which I had already heard not a little, and also to compare the work with that of handling the ordinary observation balloons, of which I had seen so much in France, Italy, and the Balkans. The captain, whom I found just getting the ship under way from the bridge, after some hesitation, promised to see what he could do, if there was not too much wind, when he was ready for balloon work to one who has had experience only of hangars on land perhaps the most impressive thing about an aeroship is the amount of gear and equipment which can be stowed and handled in restricted spaces wings and rudders which fold and refold upon each other until they form compact bundles that can be trundled about by a man or two collapsible fuselages and pontoons wheels which detach at a touch of a lever knock-down transmissions these things were everywhere the rule one baby scout i saw almost completely assembled on the launching stage and the tail which a couple of men wired to the main body in a little more than a minute i would have sworn i could have knocked off with a single well-placed kick yet five minutes later i saw that same machine loop side flop double bank and quite at the will of its young pilot who is rated the most expert seaplane man in the british naval air service recover at the end of a five hundred feet rolling fall 
all without apparently starting a strut or rivet collapsibility and portability are evidently secured without sacrificing any essential strength the science of working the seaplane from the deck of a ship is still in process of development even up to quite recently it was the practice to put a machine overboard on a sling and allow it to start from the water the use of detachable wheels which fall off into the sea after they have served their purpose in giving the preliminary run has made launching from the deck practicable and comparatively safe but the problem of landing even a wheeled machine on deck has not yet been satisfactorily solved on account of lack of room most of the experiments in this direction have ended disastrously even tragically when a seaplane is about to be launched after the usual preliminary tuning up on the launching stage the ship is swung dead into the teeth of the wind and put at full speed this matter of wind direction is very important for its variation by a fraction of a point from head-on may easily make a crooked run and a fluky launching as the latter would almost inevitably mean that both plane and pilot must be churned under the swiftly advancing forefoot of the ship no precautions calculated to avoid it are omitted besides a wind pennant at one end of the bridge assurance is made doubly sure by the turning on of a jet of steam in the mathematical centre of the extreme tip of the launching stage when the back-blown steam streams straight along the middle plank of the stage the wind is right the captain from the bridge lifts a small white flag as a signal to the wing commander that all is ready the latter nods to the pilot who starts his engine at full speed while two mechanicians braced against cleats on the deck hold back the tugging seaplane if the tone of the engine is right the wing commander standing in front of the plane and a little to one side brings down his red and yellow flag with a sharp jerk falls on his face to avoid a collision and the machine freed from the grip of the men holding it jumps away the next two seconds tell the tale for if a seaplane gets off the deck properly the rest of its flight is not likely to be eventful at practice a seaplane sails over and drops its detachable wheels near a waiting drifter which picks them up and returns them to the ship the machine swoops low and kicks loose the spares at a hundred feet or less above the surface of the water and a pilot who let his wheels go from a considerably greater altitude drew a growl from the bridge as a long fall is likely to injure them its flight over a seaplane returns to the ship by alighting on the water several hundred yards astern and floundering up alongside as best it can with a high wind and a choppy sea it is rough work the machine is so balanced that its tractor propeller should revolve in the air and clear the water by several inches even in a rough sea it will occasionally strike into green water however which is always likely to shatter the ends of the blades if nothing else the sheathing of the blades with metal affords considerable protection though a certain risk is always present 
the operation of picking a seaplane up and hoisting it inboard is a nice piece of seamanship at best but in bad weather is a practicable impossibility with a wind much above thirty miles an hour indeed only a very real need is likely to induce a mother ship to loose her birds from the home nest with a sea too rough to make it possible for a seaplane to live in it it is sometimes possible to carry on imperative reconnaissance by sending up an ordinary aeroplane some of which are always carried though the latter must of course make its landing on terra firma when its work is over the wind had been freshening considerably all afternoon but with no more than thirty miles an hour showing on the indicator there was no reason for not letting me have my balloon ride as the time approached for its ascent the balloon was allowed to rise far enough from the deck to permit its car to be pushed underneath the centre of it in order that the latter might not be dragged in the getaway i could now see that the monster had rather the form of the bag of an airship than the silkworm with stomach cramps shape of the regulation modern observation balloon its nose was less blunt than that of the sausage and the ropes were attached so that it would be pulled with that nose boring straight into the wind instead of tilted upwards like that of its army prototype the three stabilizers at its stern were located and appeared to function similarly with those of the sausage the basket was mid-waist deep and just big enough to hold comfortably two men sitting on the strips of canvas which served as seats supplementing our jackets two small life preservers of the ordinary type were lashed to the inside of the basket when i asked about parachutes i was told that while it was customary to carry them on this occasion as they were worse than useless to a man who had not practised with them it was best not to bother myself with one stick to the basket if anything happens someone said it will float for a month even if full of water someone else admonished not to blow up my jacket until we had stopped rising lest it from the expanding air i suppose should in turn blow me up then we were off the last thing i noticed on the deck was the ship's cat which i had observed a few moments previously rubbing his arched back ecstatically against a sagging stabilizer making a wild leap to catch one of the trailing guide ropes he always does that i heard my companion saying behind me some day perhaps he will catch it and then if it happens at a time when there isn't an opportunity to wind in and let him down easily i'm afraid there won't be a one of his nine lives left in the little furry pancake it will make of him when he hits the water it's surprising how the water will flatten out um, anything striking it at the end of a thousand feet fall only the week before last to deflect the conversation to more cheering channels i began to exclaim about the view and what a view it was the old xerxes was lying well down towards one end of the mighty bay so that without turning the head one could sweep the eyes over the single greatest unit of far-reaching might in the whole world war the grand fleet of the british navy and in no other way than in ascending in a balloon or a flying machine could one attain a vantage from which the whole of the fleet could be seen 
looking from the loftiest foretop from the highest hill of the islands there was always a point in the distance beyond which there was simply an amorphous slaty blur of ships melting into the gloom of the encircling land but now those mysterious blurs were crystallizing into definite lines of cleavage and soon save where some especially fantastic trick of camouflage made one ship look like two in collision or played some other equally scurvy trick on the vision i could pick out not only battleships but cruisers destroyers submarine ranged class by class and row on row even the method in the apparent madness with which the swarms of supply ships colliers oilers trawlers and drifters were scattered about was discernible save for the visibility which was diamond clear in the slanting light of the low-hanging winter sun it was just an ordinary average grand fleet day a squadron of battleships was at target practice and even better than their own gunnery officers we could tally the foam jets of the wides and shorts and the narrowing straddles a squadron of visiting battle cruisers had just come to anchor and were swinging lazily round to the tide two of them bore names which had echoed to the ends of the world the names of two of the others from their distinctive lines and great size i recognized them as twin giants i had seen still in the slips on the clyde scarcely a year previously the world has never heard a lean swift scout cruiser with an absence of effort almost uncanny was cleaving its way out toward the entrance just as a line of destroyers came scurrying in after the rolling smoke pall the following wind was driving on ahead of them out over the open seas to the east across the hilltops of the islands dim bituminous dabs on the horizon heralded the return of a battleship squadron the unceremonious departure of which two days previously had deprived me of the two last courses of my luncheon in the air was another kite floating indolently above a battleship at anchor and a half-dozen circling aeroplanes and seaplanes countless drifters and launches shuttled in and out through the evenly lined warships we were now towing with the cable forming an angle of about sixty degrees with the surface of the water and running up to us straight over the port quarter the ship had thinned down to an astonishing slender sliver not unsuggestive of a speeding arrow whose feathered shaft was represented by the foaming wake she's three or four points off the wind commented my companion and yet once we've steadied down you see it doesn't make much difference in the weather we make of it a headwind is desirable in getting up to keep from fouling the upper works amidships but we hardly need to figure it down to the last degree as in launching a seaplane when we're really trying to find something of course we have to work in any slant of wind that happens to be blowing the worst condition is a wind from anywhere abaft the beam blowing at a faster rate than the towing ship is moving through the water in that case the balloon simply drifts ahead to the end of its tether swings round and gives the ship a tow if the wind is strong enough say forty miles an hour with the ship doing twenty to make her give a good steady pull on the cable it is not so bad 
but when it is touch and go between ship and wind the poor old kite is all over the shop and about as difficult to work in as to ride in which is saying a great deal what do you mean by work i asked looking out for things and reporting them to the ship over the telephone was the reply perhaps even trying to run them down and destroy them can't we play at a bit of work now i suggested supposing we were at sea and you saw what you thought to be the wake of the periscope of a u-boat a few miles away what would you do my companion laughed well he said if i had the old xerxes down there on the other end of the string i would simply report the bearing and approximate distance of the periscope over the telephone and let her do the rest and what would the rest consist of i asked principally of turning tail and running at top speed for the nearest protected waters was the reply and incidentally broadcasting a wireless giving position of the u-boat and the direction it was moving in but supposing it was a destroyer we had on the string i persisted and that you had no other present interest in the world beyond the finding of one of these little v-shaped ripples the modus operandi would vary a bit in that case wouldn't it radically he admitted i would give the destroyer what i figured was the shortest possible course to bring her into the vicinity of the u-boat as long as the wake of the periscope was visible i would correct that course from time to time by ordering so many degrees to port or to starboard as the case might be as soon as the periscope disappeared which it would do of course just as soon as the eye at the bottom of it saw the kite i would merely make a guess at the submarine's most likely course and steer the destroyer to converge with that our success or failure would then hinge upon whether or not i could get my eye on the submarine where it lurked or was making off under water in that event provided only there was enough light left to work with it would be long odds against that u-boat ever seeing willemshaven again just as you guide a horse by turning it to left or right at the tug of a rein so by giving the destroyer a course now to one side and now to the other until it was headed straight over its prey i would guide the craft at the other end of the telephone wire to a point from which a depth charge could be dropped with telling effect if the conditions were favourable i might even be able to form a rough estimate of the distance of the u-boat beneath the surface to help in setting the hydrostat of the charge to explode at the proper depth if the first shot fails to do the business we have only to double back and let off another nothing but the coming of night or of a storm is likely to save the u-boat once we spotted it is it difficult to pick up a submarine under water i asked well that depends largely upon the light and the amount of sea running was the reply conditions are by no means so favourable as in the mediterranean but at the same time they are much better than in some other parts of the north sea and the atlantic the condition of the surface of the water also has a lot to do with it you can see a lot deeper when the sea is glassy smooth than when it is even slightly rippled waves tossed up enough to break into whitecaps make it still harder to see far below the surface while enough wind as today to throw a film of foam all over the water cuts off the view completely on a smooth day for instance a drifter which lies on the bottom over there deeper down than a u-boat is likely to go of its own free will 
is fairly clearly defined from this height. Today you couldn't find a sunk battleship there. I remarked on the fact that, in spite of the heavy wind, our basket was riding more steadily than that of any stationary observation balloon I had ever been in up in the front. It yaws a bit, I observed, but I've never been up in a balloon with less of that jig-a-jig movement which makes it so hard to fix an object with your glasses. The latest stabilizers have just about eliminated the troublesome jig-a-jig, replied my companion. He turned to me with a grin. You're in luck, he said, ships heading up into the wind to let a seaplane go just as they're ready to wind us in. You'll learn now why they call one of these balloons a kite there they go hold fast there was a sudden side-winding jerk and then that perfectly good seascape grand fleet orkneys the north end of scotland and all was hashed up into something full of zigzag lines like a futuristic masterpiece or the latest thing in scientific camouflaging my friends on the deck told me afterwards that the basket did not loop the loop, that it did not jump through, lie down, and roll over like a clown terrier in a circus. But how could they, who were a thousand feet away, know better than I, who was on the spot? When I put that poser to them, however, one of them replied that it was because they had their eyes open the only sympathetic witness i found was one who admitted that while the kite itself behaved with a good deal of dignity the basket did perform some evolutions not unremotely suggestive of a canvas water bucket swung on the end of a rope by a sailor in a hurry for his morning souse end of section seven